Depression comes to all of us at times. I know personally. I suffer from depression myself and have most of my life. But if you can't seem to get out of it and you're using illegal drugs, alcohol, or other bad influences to try and escape the pain, you're not alone. Please stop and do me a favor. Call 800-831-1560. They'll show you a way out of the darkness. That's 800-831-1560. 800-831-1560. Stories and content in Weird Darkness can be disturbing for some listeners and is intended for mature audiences only. Parental discretion is strongly advised. It can be terrifying enough when a poltergeist makes its appearance in a household. Rocks thrown about, strange bangs on the walls, moving furniture, items disappearing and then reappearing. This is enough to set anyone on edge. However, when a poltergeist finds its voice and starts to talk, you know that events have decidedly taken a turn for the worse. I'm Darren Marlar, and this is Weird Darkness. Welcome, Weirdos! This is Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, legends, lore, mysterious, macabre, unsolved, and unexplained. If you have a dark tale for me to tell, fact or fiction, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com. And if you're new here, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Coming up in this episode of Weird Darkness… In the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, the giant threatens to eat Jack by killing him and grinding his bones into bread. But it's not just fairy tales that have human bone bread. It's a reality in the kitchens of some people. On December 26, 1900, something strange and unexplained happened on the largest of the Flannan Islands, Eileen Moore, Scotland. Three lighthouse keepers disappeared into the night, never to be seen again. Their mysterious disappearance still baffles historians and scientists even today. According to legend, one small town in Iowa suffered a very strange fate. No one knows when the town of Urkhammer was established, and nobody knows where it has gone. And when a poltergeist finds its voice and begins to speak, you know the haunting you're living through is about to get worse. We'll begin with that story. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the weird darkness. Poltergeist activity has been recorded throughout history and is probably the most prolific of all supernatural events. One of the earliest accounts was from around 500 AD when Saint Germain, Bishop of Auxerre, was bothered by a spirit that battered the walls of a shelter the bishop was spending the night in with showers of rocks. Another early case was the Bingen poltergeist which comes from the Annales Faldensis, or Annals of Fulda. This incident happened near Bingen in present-day Bavaria 
around 856 to 858 AD. A farmer was plagued by a stone-throwing ghost who shook the walls of his house as though the men of the place were striking it with hammers, set crops on fire, and also shouted obscenities and accusations at the farmer suggesting that he slept with the daughter of his foreman. The poltergeist would follow the man around and fearful neighbors would refuse to allow him near their homes. The Bishop of Mainz sent priests with holy relics who attested to hearing the poltergeist denouncing the farmer for adultery. When the priests sang hymns and sprinkled holy water, the poltergeist threw stones and cursed at them. The Bingen poltergeist had many typical features of a poltergeist that are still repeated in modern times. The fact that this poltergeist could talk is something that has been seen in other cases, but nevertheless, it really doesn't happen that often. Poltergeist phenomenon is often placed in the same niche as ghosts and hauntings. The implication is that a poltergeist is a ghost, i.e. a human that has died and returned in spirit form. There is no doubt that there are similarities between ghosts and poltergeist activity. However, a ghostly haunting often tends to have the visual element. For example, a glowing figure dressed in old-fashioned clothes is seen walking down a hallway. A haunting also repeats in the same way on a regular basis, much like a recording that is played back over and over. In long-term ghostly hauntings, a ghost will usually ignore entreaties from the living and shows no sign of awareness of its surroundings. Poltergeist activity, however, operates in a completely different fashion. A poltergeist almost never makes an appearance and becomes visible, but as with ghostly hauntings, there are always exceptions. A poltergeist can do such things as move heavy furniture, instantaneously teleport objects, produce explosive sounds and disgusting odors, create rain inside a building, cause spontaneous fires, and other things that seem to be outside of our current understanding of physics. A poltergeist is extremely aware of its surroundings and will often quickly respond to suggestions by observers and other external stimuli. This shows that there is some kind of intelligence behind its pranks and not just some random psychokinesis. This intelligence, along with an ability to communicate, will manifest in a myriad of ways. Pieces of paper with strange messages appear, writing on the walls, children's toys will be arranged to make words, and perhaps the most shocking, they will sometimes start to speak out loud. When a poltergeist achieves speech, it generally starts out as animal-like growls and whispers that slowly evolve into discernible words. Most poltergeists never reach this stage of their development, but once they do, a clear personality emerges from what were previously just random events. One early case of a talking poltergeist happened in Macon, France in 1612 when a Calvinist pastor named Francois Perrault became the target of a very unsettling poltergeist. Perrault's poltergeist made its first appearance on September 19, 1612, when invisible hands started shaking bed curtains and tossing bedclothes onto the floor. This continued for several nights and then escalated 
when Perot and his family heard a frightful din in the kitchen, consisting of unearthly rumblings and knockings, accompanied by the sounds of plates, pots, and pans being hurled against the walls. Perot rushed to the kitchen, expecting to find his kitchen destroyed, but was shocked to find that everything was normal and the kitchenware was in place. Eventually, a voice that was very distinct and understandable, although somewhat husky, was heard in the house. It sang, 22 pennies, 22 pennies, and then repeated the word minister several times. Perot said to the voice, Get thee behind me, Satan, the Lord commands you. The voice kept saying, Minister, minister, until the exasperated Perot snapped, Yes, I am indeed a minister and a servant of the living God before whose majesty you tremble. I'm not saying otherwise, the voice replied. Once the poltergeist began speaking, it would not stop. It recited the Ten Commandments, followed by Our Father, the Apostles' Creed, and other prayers. It also sang psalms and recited accurate personal details about Perot's family. The voice claimed that it was from Pays de Vaud, which was at the time infamous for its witch hunts. The voice told wild stories, made inappropriate jokes, and often acted like a child and teased the maid. It was also able to expertly mimic the voices of various Macon residents. It also took on several different identities. At one time, the voice claimed to be the valet of the original entity, who had left the house and was now in Chambry. On November 25th, the voice announced that it would no longer speak, but its antics in the form of throwing stones, tying knots in the mane and tail of Perot's horse, and other typical poltergeist stunts continued through until December when it finally disappeared forever. The Bell Witch poltergeist in 1817 was very similar to the Macon poltergeist due to the fact that the witch was extremely talkative and could imitate the voices of people from the area. The poltergeist was said to speak at a nerve-wracking pitch when displeased, while at other times it sang and talked in low musical tones. In one instance, it was alleged to have repeated, verbatim, sermons administered by two preachers occurring at separate locations that took place simultaneously. The sermons recited by the witch were verified by people attending the churches as being identical in voice, tone, inflection, and content. The poltergeist was even known to attend church and sing along with the congregation, using the most beautiful voice anyone had ever heard. As well, the poltergeist had the ability to change personalities in the middle of a conversation with the bells or their visitors. The witch had several distinct personalities, each with different voices and traits, which made it easy for the family to separate the perpetrator of the moment. This ability to produce different personalities also shows up in other poltergeist cases, creating a belief that there are a number of different entities haunting a house. The Bell Witch was very fond of talking about religion and philosophy for hours on end, especially with John Bell Jr., the witch had developed a respect for John Bell Jr. due to his tendency to stand up to its abusive behavior. In 1828, the poltergeist reappeared to John Bell Jr. telling him, John, 
I'm in hopes you will not be as angry at me on this visit as you were on my last. I shall do nothing to cause you offense. I have been in the West Indies for seven years." Despite his misgivings, the poltergeist had long talks with him about the past, the present, and the future. Years later, he told his son, Dr. Joel Thomas Bell, the details of the poltergeist's discussions. A book was published in 1934, The Bell Witch, a Mysterious Spirit, which supposedly was met by outrage by other members of the Bell family who felt that details of the family problem should not have been made public. When a poltergeist does find its voice, it seems to take great delight in spinning wild tales of its identity and origin. It may at one time say it is the ghost of someone who died years before, only to change its tune later and profess to be the devil or a demon. Like the Bell Witch, the Shawville Poltergeist, also known as the Dag Poltergeist, enjoyed entertaining visitors by telling obscene stories and, conversely, singing hymns in an angelic voice. The Shawville Poltergeist took place in the Ottawa Valley, Quebec, in 1889 and centered on the farm and family of George Dagg. The incidents started with what appeared to be animal feces streaked along the farmhouse floor. At first, a young farmhand named Dean was blamed since he was known to come into the house with dirty shoes. Nevertheless, after the boy had been fired, the strange incidents continued with crockery moving, fires starting spontaneously and windows being smashed. The Dagg family's 11-year-old adopted daughter, Dina Burden McLean, was also physically attacked by the entity when it pulled her hair so hard that her braid was almost torn off. Later, when Dina's grandmother was making up one of the bedrooms, the girl shouted, Oh, grandmother, see the big black thing pulling off the bedclothes! The woman could see the sheets being pulled up, but couldn't see what was doing it. She handed Dina a whip, telling the girl to strike out at the invisible being. Dina struck the air a few times and both the girl and her grandmother heard a sound like a pig squealing. A few days later, a piece of paper bearing the message, you gave me 15 cuts, was found nailed to the wall. After this incident, Dina claimed that she was hearing a strange, gruff voice that followed her around saying bad words to her. Soon the entire family and others could hear the gruff man's voice who identified itself as the devil. Not everyone was convinced the voice was a supernatural being and blamed Dina for everything. At one point her mouth was filled with water, yet the voice could still be clearly heard by everyone in the room. Much like the Bell Witch, the Shawville poltergeist enjoyed the attention and would talk for hours. It would often give conflicting stories on what it was. Previously, it said it was the devil. Later, it claimed to be the spirit of an old man who had died 20 years earlier. When George asked why it was bothering his family, it replied, just for fun. It also admitted setting small fires in the house, but again, only for its amusement. I set the fires in the daytime when you could see them. I like fires, but I didn't want to burn the house down. After several months of activity, the voice announced that it was going away. When word got out, 
Crowds began gathering at the house to witness the event. The voice was happy to answer questions from the crowd, but now it claimed, I am an angel from heaven sent by God to drive away that fellow. You don't believe that I am an angel because my voice is coarse, it said to the crowd. I will show you I don't lie, but always tell the truth. Instantly, its voice took on an incredible sweetness, and it started singing a hymn. I am waiting, I am waiting to call you, dear sinner. Come to the Savior, come to Him now. Won't you receive Him right now, right now? Oh, list, now He is calling today. He is calling you to Jesus. Move, come to Him now, come to Him, dear brothers and sisters, come to Him now. Witness testimony agreed that the poltergeist sang with such a beautiful voice that many of the women were reduced to tears. After several hours of singing, the poltergeist said goodbye, saying it would return the next morning and show itself to Dina and the other children. The next morning, the children breathlessly told their parents that, a beautiful man, he took little Johnny and me in his arms, he went to heaven and was all red. Under questioning, the children described a man dressed in white with a lovely face with long white hair. He also had ribbons and pretty things all over his clothes and a gold object with stars on his head. The man reached down and picked them up saying that they were fine children. Dina said he had spoken to her as well, telling her that everyone thought he was not an angel but he would show he was. Then he had gone up to heaven. Questioned further, she said he seemed to rise up in the air and disappear in a kind of fire that blazed from his feet. Compared to other poltergeist events, talking poltergeists seem to be in a category all by themselves. They may start out the same, annoying pranks, strange noises, showers of rocks and other debris, but then they seem to turn a corner and gain energy to a point where a consciousness and personality emerges. The personality is much like a child or mentally challenged adult, but it is a personality nevertheless. Both the Bell Witch and the Shawville Poltergeist exhibit almost identical personality traits. Both were fond of using obscene language and taking on the roles of different characters. Both entities were never shy about talking for hours in front of multiple witnesses. In fact, they seemed to thrive on the attention. They also claimed the ability to travel instantaneously to far-off locations, bringing back information that could be verified later. So much has been written about the Dalby spook over the years that there really is nothing new that can be added for this chapter. Nevertheless, Considering the similarities between Geff and other talking poltergeists, this amazing case does need to be included. The case of Geff, the talking mongoose, started in 1931 on the Isle of Man, located in the Irish Sea between England and Ireland. The farm, located on an isolated hilltop, was home to 60-year-old Jim Irving, his wife Margaret, and their 12-year-old daughter, Voiray. Jim had been a traveling salesman before taking up farming in his retirement. The farm was not a success and the family struggled to make ends meet. Dorlish Cashin, Manx for Cashin's Gap, was extremely isolated with no electricity, no phone, and no radio. 
By all descriptions, life on the Irving farm was dreary and offered few pleasantries. This all changed when Geth made his appearance when the family started hearing strange blowing, spitting, and growling sounds coming from behind the wooden paneling lining the farmhouse walls. Eventually, these sounds turned into recognizable words from a very high-pitched voice. The voice introduced itself as Geth and claimed to be an extra-clever mongoose born in Delhi, India in 1852. Geth was soon holding regular conversations with the Irving family. He would travel in the space between the interior wooden paneling and the exterior walls of the house. He reportedly would throw objects like pins or rocks from the cracks and holes in the paneling. Although Jim and Margaret both caught brief glimpses of Geth, only Voiray was allowed to look at him directly. She described him as being the size of a small rat, with yellowish fur, a flat snout like a hedgehog, and a long, bushy tail. Even though Geth acted like a poltergeist, he once told Jim that he was a living creature and was, in fact, terrified of ghosts. Like other talking poltergeists, Geth's voice had an inhuman quality about it. Those that did hear him said his voice was high-pitched, at least an octave above a human voice. Unlike other talking poltergeists, Geth did not like to talk to others outside of the Irving family. Paranormal investigators Harry Price and Nandor Fodor went to great lengths to travel to Dorlish Cashin, but Geth refused to talk to them. However, there were plenty of witnesses to Geth's ability to speak to convince both men that there was some sort of unusual activity at the Irving house. In their book about Geth, the Haunting of Cashin's Gap, A Modern Miracle Investigated, Price and R. S. Lambert noticed some parallels to poltergeist cases. They wrote, "...many of the events related by Irving can be classified by those experienced in psychical research as belonging to the class of poltergeist phenomena. Among these are Geff's habit of throwing sand and small stones, also metal, wooden, and bone objects at persons in or near Dorlish Cashin, the thumping, scratching, rapping, and banging noises which he makes behind the paneling and in the rafters of the house, and the movement of furniture. In 1970, Voiray agreed to be interviewed by Walter McGraw for Fate magazine. Voiray denied any involvement and seemed rather bitter about the whole experience, stating, "...it was not a hoax, Gaff was very detrimental to my life. We were snubbed." The other children used to call me the spook. We had to leave the Isle of Man, and I hope that no one where I work now ever knows the story. Geff has even kept me from getting married. How could I ever tell a man's family about what happened? She continued by saying that Geff made me meet people I didn't want to meet. Then they said I was mental or a ventriloquist. Believe me, if I was that good, I would jolly well be making money from it now. Geff remains a true enigma in the hollowed halls of paranormal research. One side thinks that Geff was a poltergeist, while the other side thinks he was something else. If you were to compare Geff to other talking poltergeists, the similarities are obvious. Like the Bell Witch and the Shawville poltergeist, Geff enjoyed singing hymns. On January 19, 1935, Geff was in high spirits 
sang the hymns Jesus My Savior on Calvary's Tree and six verses of The King of Love My Shepherd Is. As well, like other talking poltergeists, Geff's voice was said to be strange and not like human speech. Jim Irving also said that Geff's laughter varied from what sounded like a small child, an adult chuckle, or a maniacal laughter that left the family thinking they were dealing with an insane creature from hell. Geff is also discounted as being a poltergeist because he was seen physically several times. However, a talking poltergeist is often able to make itself visible, but much like the way it can talk in different voices, it can also appear in different forms. Around the same time that Geth was active, another talking poltergeist appeared in Zaragoza, Spain. The Palazon family was living in an apartment complex on Gascon Goder Street when in September 1934 they started to hear maniacal laughter and voices coming from inside their home. At first the voice sounded like a woman, but later it would change and appear to be a man speaking. The family was perplexed by the strange sounds, but kept it to themselves for fear of ridicule. When the din coming from the apartment became too much, neighbors called the police. The voice then started shouting, Cowards! Cowards! You called the police! Cowards! When they arrived, the household's young maid, named Pascalula Alcoser, told police that when she was trying to light the wood stove, she heard a loud voice coming from the stove, saying, "'You're hurting me!' The police checked the apartment, but couldn't find any source for the mysterious voice. Word quickly spread, and hundreds of people gathered outside of Building Number 2 in hopes of hearing the goblin for themselves. Local police and judges personally investigated the home, forcing the family to move out as they shut off electricity and phone service as they tore the place apart. This enraged the voice and it shouted to everyone that it would kill them and all the residents in the building. Authorities also brought in psychiatrists to question Pascuala, whom they suspected of hoaxing everything. The doctors suggested that Pascuala was mentally ill and that she was producing the voice through subconscious ventriloquism. At one point, they sent the maid on a vacation along with the family, yet the voice continued to speak. Even moving every resident out of Building Number 2 failed to stop it. Whatever the source, the voice was able to see what was going on around the building. It would guess the number of people that were in a room at a time. It would interact with police officers directly when they asked it what it wanted. Do you want money? No. Do you want a job? No. Every man wants something. I'm not a man. One of the original builders was brought in to take measurements of the kitchen, but the voice interrupted, saying, Don't worry, it measures 75 centimeters. The mason was so scared, he left the building never to come back, leaving his tools behind in a closet. Eventually, the voice vanished just as mysteriously as it had arrived. Pascuala went into seclusion, lamenting up until her death years later that the voice from the wall ruined her life. There are many more cases of talking poltergeists that have been carefully researched and chronicled, and probably hundreds more that were never reported for fear of ridicule. The poltergeist by itself is an oddity in the world of paranormal research, 
and the talking poltergeist goes even further as a head-scratcher due to its outright off-the-wall high strangeness. All kinds of theories on the true nature of the poltergeist have been suggested. Black magic and curses as the cause of poltergeists are popular in countries such as Brazil, where spiritism is still practiced. Folklore concerning elemental spirits such as fairies, hobs, and goblins show that they were also fond of mischievous tricks such as throwing rocks, starting fires, and stealing household objects. Middle Eastern folklore and Muslim theology concerning the jinn and their amazing powers also have similarities to the poltergeist. The jinn are beings with free will that once lived on Earth but were sent away by God to a world parallel to mankind. The word jinn comes from an Arabic root meaning hidden from sight, so they are physically invisible from man as their description suggests. The jinn will take possession of buildings or locations and torment any person who goes to live there. They throw rocks at people. They can levitate and cause objects to disappear. A jinn can quickly travel great distances. One of the powers of the jinn is that they are able to take on any physical form they like. Thus, they can appear as humans, animals, and anything else. They can mimic the voices of deceased humans, claiming to be spirits or even Satan. They enjoy playing tricks and frightening people. In fact, they can feel strong emotions such as fear or grief and gain energy from these strong emotions. Like humans, the jinn have distinct personalities. There are those who are of low intelligence, quick to anger, and are fond of playing tricks. Others have a superior intellect and act more along the lines of guardian angels rather than tricksters. It is interesting to consider that the poltergeist could be an elemental spirit rather than human. This could explain why poltergeists, especially the more energetic talking poltergeist, are resistant and very hostile to attempts to get rid of them by using religious methods. If a poltergeist is not a human spirit or a demon in a Christian, Jewish, or Muslim tradition, attempts to use exorcism are pretty much useless. Considering that the poltergeist could be something other than a human spirit, the website thestateofreality.com states to be the combined effort of four professional remote viewers that have set out to share their project findings regarding socially significant anomalous target sets. On this site, there is an interesting article concerning their remote viewing of the Bell Witch incident. Jeff Coley writes that the team's result of their remote viewing attempt came up with the concept of something contained or restrained inside an enclosure. Often this container was sketched and described to be like a bottle, while at other times as a box of some kind, which acted as an enclosure or tomb. One viewer's session described this object as an ossuary, similar to what a collector of antique relics might possess within their private collection. Other sessions described what looked suspiciously similar to the idea of a genie bottle. According to Coley, something had been contained inside a bottle or box. The viewers described it as a phantom, an intelligence, and a thought form. The remote viewing work describes the purpose of this thing as having to do with amusement, recreation, performance, and the idea of sending a message.
The viewers also described that the phenomenon was associated with something destructive in nature. One viewer notes that it is like a parasite or a time bomb that somehow escaped or was accidentally released. The opinion by the remote viewers was that whatever the Bell Witch was, it had been deliberately contained as a punishment eons ago. Three of the viewers described guards who seemed to be keeping this thing bottled up. One viewer described these guards as ethereal, floating, muscular brutes, almost like otherworldly prison guards, while another viewer described something like a sentry, guarding and patrolling. It almost sounds like the Bell Witch, and it even admitted to John Bell Jr. that it was millions of years old, was an artificial intelligence that had been created by a highly advanced and now vanished civilization that could have been terrestrial or even extraterrestrial. Its purpose might have been to entertain and teach, but somehow became uncontrollable and had to be contained. This is just speculation, of course, but considering how unusual and powerful talking poltergeists can be, is it really so far-fetched to say that these invisible intelligences might be a form of artificial intelligence? Not an intelligence contained within a machine, but an artificial intelligence without a physical form. In other words, an artificial spirit. Perhaps these AIs were locked away millions of years ago for some reason. As time wore on, some have managed to escape their confinement and then proceed to wreak havoc in the area where they were kept. Perhaps they have limited energy that can no longer be recharged. This could explain why they disappear so abruptly and completely, never to be heard from again. When you look at past cases of talking poltergeists, they display personalities that, if they were human subjects, doctors would describe them as psychotic or schizophrenic. This madness could be the result of millions of years of lonely confinement with little hope of rescue. The human mind would self-destruct in a matter of months. Consider what this amount of time could have done to an artificial mind. Rather than fear and loathe these tortured entities, a better solution would be to offer them kindness and understanding. For any creature with a soul, even if it is an artificial soul, deserves happiness and even love. This is a difficult concept, considering the torture these things have brought upon their victims, but even a savage dog will eventually respond to a kind heart. Could the poltergeist respond as well? Up next, in the story of Jack and the Beanstalk, the giant threatens to eat Jack by killing him and grinding his bones into bread. But it's not just fairy tales that have human bone bread, it's a reality in the kitchens of some people. And on December 26, 1900, something strange and unexplained happened on the largest of the Flannan Islands, Eileen Moore, Scotland. Three lighthouse keepers disappeared into the night never to be seen again. Their mysterious disappearance still baffles historians and scientists even today. These stories and more when Weird Darkness returns. Well, it's the new year, and that means New Year's resolutions, right? 
So what's your New Year's resolution? To lose weight? To exercise more? Maybe to give up a habit? Well, doing any of those things is going to be a lot easier if you have a good night's sleep first. And now's the perfect time if you've not already tried a MyPillow, because right now you can get two premium and two go-anywhere pillows for one low price with free shipping. Now, if you've been a weirdo for any length of time, you know I do not promote anything here unless I believe in it myself. I'm already using a MyPillow. I've got one of their seat cushions, which helped me immensely with some back issues I was having uh, in the office. And I also have one of their Go Anywhere pillows, which also helps out with the back problems. And I use it in the family room on my recliner, just lounging around. And now, in the mail, on its way, is a mattress topper for me. I, I just want to try it. But now is the perfect time to try my pillow. Get two premium my pillows and two Go Anywhere pillows for one low price with free shipping. All you have to do is visit mypillow.com and then use the promo code WEIRD. Click on the four-pack special when you're there. MyPillow.com, click on the four-pack special, and then use the promo code WEIRD. Or you can call 800-945-7192. That's 800-945-7192. Ask for the four-pack special and use the promo code WEIRD for free shipping. Fee, fi, fo, thumb. I smell the blood of an Englishman. Be he alive or be he dead, I'll grind his bones to make my bread. The rhyme comes from the popular fairy tale Jack and the Beanstalk and is one of the best known rhymes in the English language. This rhyme is uttered by the giant, whom the eponymous character Jack encounters on the top of the beanstalk. The idea of grinding human bones to make bread may be reasonably assumed to belong to the realm of fantasy. Nevertheless, instances of human bones being ground and reused, including for the making of bread, have been recorded in history. The story of Jack and the Beanstalk is one of the best-known children's fairy tales in the English language. The tale first appeared in print in 1734 during the reign of George II of England and is slightly different from the children-friendly version that we are familiar with today. One of the characters in the tale is the giant, who threatens to grind his bones to make my bread when he detects the boy's presence in his castle. With this line, the giant is effectively cast as a man-eating monster. The giant's threats would naturally send shivers down the spine of any child hearing the tale for the first time, though one may take comfort in the knowledge that man-eating giants are fictional. Well, certainly they do not exist in the world today, at least. The facts are, however, sometimes stranger than fiction, and there are several instances in which human bones were ground, not by giants, but by other human beings, to be reused. One of these is found in the diary of Pierre de l'Estoile, clerk-in-chief of the French Parliament during the 1590 siege of Paris. During the second half of the 16th century, France was embroiled in the wars of religion which saw Catholics pitted against Protestants. In 1590 Paris, which was held by the Catholic League, 
was besieged by the French royal army under Henry of Navarre, the future Henry IV of France. The besiegers sought to force the defenders into starvation and therefore prevented food from entering the city. In the middle of June, Pierre recounts an assembly that was called to address the issue of food shortages. During the assembly, it was proposed that the bones from the Carnal House, a building for storing skeletal remains that are unearthed during the digging of new graves at the Cemetery of the Innocents, be ground into flour and made into bread. As a result of their desperation, no one opposed the proposal and the plan was carried out. Pierre notes, however, that the experiment was soon abandoned as those who consumed the bread died nonetheless. This is confirmed by another eyewitness, Enrico Caterino de Villa, an Italian historian and diplomat who fought in the French Wars of Religion. It is not entirely clear, however, as to why the people who ate the bone bread died, and a number of hypotheses have been put forward. Some of the less plausible ones include the presence of arsenic or deadly viruses in the bones, or that the eating of this bread had a negative psychological effect on its consumers due to the near-universal taboo against cannibalism, thus killing them. One of the more plausible hypotheses is that human bones lacked both calories and nutrients and therefore did not provide the necessary nutrients to sustain a person. In addition, bone is composed mainly of inorganic minerals, which could not be digested and it's difficult to be extracted if it's eaten. The accumulation of these minerals in the gastrointestinal tract of those who ate the bone bread may cause intestinal obstructions, which would have been fatal. Although human bone is poor in nutrients, it is rich in minerals, especially calcium. While the besieged Parisians in 1590 might not have known this, Europeans were aware of it by the early 19th century. In 1815, the Napoleonic Wars ended following Napoleon's defeat at the Battle of Waterloo. This major conflict left many soldiers dead on the battlefield, and a few years after Waterloo, their bones, along with those of horses, were being removed and usually shipped to Hull before being sent to bone grinders. The ground bones, however, were not being used to make bread, but for the production of fertilizers due to their rich mineral content. Finally, it may be mentioned that there is a type of bread from England called bone bread. Fortunately, the recipe does not call for human bones. The name of this bread, as a matter of fact, is derived from the boneyard scavengers who lived along Gloucestershire's River Severn during the 1860s. On December 26, 1900, something strange and unexplained happened on the largest of Flannan Islands, Elan Moor, Scotland. Three lighthouse keepers disappeared into the night, never to be seen again. Their mysterious disappearance still baffles historians and scientists. The three lighthouse keepers, Captain Thomas Marshall, James Ducott, and Donald MacArthur, vanished on the island without a trace, leaving only speculation behind. A small ship was sent to the Flannan Islands in the remote Outer Hebrides. Its destination was the lighthouse at Elan Moor, named after St. Flannan, a 6th-century Irish bishop who later became a saint 
the island was completely uninhabited, apart from its lighthouse keepers. The ship carried supplies and a change of crew, but due to the storm, this was delayed. When the ship arrived at Elan Moor, there was no sign of the three lighthouse keepers. Captain James Harvey, who was in charge of the supply ship, blew his horn and sent up a warning flare to attract attention. But there was no response. Under normal circumstances, someone should have been waiting at the front of the lighthouse to welcome the ship. It all seemed very strange. The interior of the lighthouse was as it should be, with oil in the lamps waiting to be lit and ashes in the grate. The only thing which appeared out of the ordinary was the two sets of missing oilskins, the outdoor gear the keepers donned. Only one set remained, belonging to Donald MacArthur. Obviously, he had gone outside in a ferocious storm in just his clothes. This was not only unheard of but also illegal. One of the rules of the Northern Lighthouse Board was that one man always must remain inside the lighthouse. So, why did he leave the lighthouse? Captain James Harvey quickly sent back a telegram to the mainland, which in turn was forwarded to the Northwest Lighthouse Board headquarters in Edinburgh. The telegraph read, A dreadful accident has happened at Flannan's. The three keepers, Ducat, Marshall, and the Occasional, have disappeared from the island. On our arrival there this afternoon, no sign of life was to be seen on the island. Fired a rocket, but as no response was made, managed to land more, who went up to the station but found no keepers there. The clocks were stopped, and other signs indicated that the accident must have happened about a week ago. Poor fellows, they must have been blown over the cliffs or drowned trying to secure a crane or something like that. Night coming on, we could not wait to make something as to their fate. I have left Moore, MacDonald, Boymaster, and two seamen on the island to keep the light burning until you make other arrangements. Will not return to Oban until I hear from you. I have repeated this wire to Muirhead in case you are not at home. I will remain at the telegraph office tonight until it closes if you wish to wire me. A few days later, Robert Muirhead, the board's superintendent, who both recruited and knew all three men personally, departed for the island to investigate the disappearances himself. His investigation of the lighthouse found nothing over and above what Moore had already reported. That is, except for the lighthouse's log. Muir had quickly noticed that the last few days of entries were unusual. On the 12th of December, Thomas Marshall, the second assistant, wrote of severe winds the likes of which I have never seen before in 20 years. He also noticed that James Ducat, the principal keeper, had been very quiet and that the third assistant, William MacArthur, had been crying. What is strange about the final remark was that William MacArthur was a seasoned mariner and was known on the Scottish mainland as a tough brawler. Why would he be crying about a storm? Log entries on the 13th of December stated that the storm was still raging and that all three men had been praying. But why would three experienced lighthouse keepers, safely situated on a brand new lighthouse that was 150 feet above sea level, be praying for a storm to stop? they should have been perfectly safe. Even more peculiar is that there were no reported storms in the area on the 12th, 13th, and 14th of December. In fact, the weather was reported as calm, and the storms that were to batter the island didn't hit until December 17th, 
four days after the log entries. The final log entry was made on the 15th of December. It simply read, Storm ended, sea calm, God is over all. What was meant by God is over all? Investigators concluded that two of the men must have been outside during the storm and were swept away by the waves. Donald MacArthur then ran out to their rescue but was also swept away. But even the official investigation was mere speculation as no proof to the story has ever appeared and the explanation left some people in the Northern Lighthouse Board unconvinced. Many are still wondering why none of the bodies washed ashore. It is simply as if all three men walked off the island never to be seen again. Over the following decades, subsequent lighthouse keepers at Eileen Moore have reported strange voices in the wind, calling out the names of the three dead men. Several speculations have emerged, but the fact remains, the mysterious disappearance of the three lighthouse keepers remains unsolved. When Weird Darkness Returns According to legend, one small town in Iowa suffered a very strange fate. No one knows when the town of Urkhammer was established, and nobody knows where it has gone. That story is up next. A creature, part of the darkness before God created the heavens and earth, has awakened. It had slumbered, hibernating from the light. Now it's hungry and wanting to feed. Bobby, a local kid, and the police chief have gone missing. Everyone in the small town of Standard, Illinois, is turning to former Chicago cop Rob Aletto to find them. But as he starts his search, more people disappear. Rob is quickly overwhelmed. The night itself seems to come alive, taking these people. Aletto must find out why and discover a way to stop it before the entire town slips into darkness. Into Darkness by Jason R. Davis Narrated by Weird Darkness host Darren Marlar, the greatly anticipated sequel to Inside the Mirrors. Hear a free sample on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Have you heard about the hemp oil explosion? It's exploding for good reason. It's beneficial in a wide range of applications, including health, anti-aging, nutrition, pain relief, hair growth as a vitamin supplement, energy and focus, stress relief, better sleep. It's even useful for the furry family members in your home. And even better, it's all natural. I'm currently using a hemp oral spray as an appetite suppressant, and it's helped me immensely to keep the late-night junk food cravings at bay. If you want to check it out for yourself, look for CTFO on the sponsors page at WeirdDarkness.com. The geographically central states of the United States of America have seen their share of small towns. Some grew into cities, some maintained their unique small identity, and many, many, many vanished as fortunes and fate drew residents to other places. According to legend, however, one small town in Iowa suffered a much stranger fate. It's unknown when Urkhammer, Iowa was established. It was a standard small town that attracted no real attention previous to a 1929 article 
published in the Clarion Sun-Telegraph newspaper of Davenport, Iowa. According to the article, two very strange things had recently happened in regard to the town of Urkhammer. First, photos taken by an airplane that flew over the town were said to show the town appeared abandoned, with the fields overgrown and unattended, and some now say that the photos only showed fields where buildings and roads should have been, as if the town was not actually there. Second, the newspaper recounted the experience of a visitor to the town about a week after the photos were taken. This visitor stopped to fill his gas tank, but then had his car run out of gas just two miles out of town. Angry at being cheated, the man walked back to Urkhammer to give the gas station a piece of his mind. But even after two hours of walking, the town never seemed to get closer. He was eventually helped by a passing motorist who shared gas to his car, but the whole matter had unnerved the poor man enough that he had to spend time in a sanitarium. Fantastic though these stories are, they were basically lost in the newspaper against the news of the Wall Street crash of 1929 and the beginning of the Great Depression. One resident of Urkhammer had seen the articles and wrote to the editor to protest the apparent attempt to paint the town as either non-existent or ghostly. Miss Fatima Morgana, a strange name for someone claiming to not be strange, gave a brief description of her life in Urkhammer as a schoolteacher and an anti-Saloon League activist, but her letter was also lost in the paper among the accounts of the fallout of the previous week's financial crash. Odd though these stories were, Urkhammer, located along Route 41, was still just another town to passers-by who would wave to children playing in the yards as they drove along the road. In 1932, a caravan of Illinois farm families heading to California made camp on the outskirts of Urkhammer one night. The groups pulled together what little money they had and sent two men into the town to purchase some supplies for the trek they were continuing in the morning. The men walked to the general store in Urkhammer, but were mystified when they got there. Each attempt to mount the steps into the store failed as their feet passed through the lowest step as if it wasn't there. They must have been desperate, for they found a board lying around and could apparently pick it up, where they placed it over the steps and then tried to walk up the plank, and their feet then passed through that too. Back at the farmer's camp, their story was disbelieved until they showed that they hadn't spent any of the money on liquor. Then a group of a dozen or so men, some armed, went back to the store to see for themselves what was happening when they too could not touch the building very clearly in front of them, the whole caravan soon decamped and left with all the speed they could muster. When the story of the odd experience spread far enough, Urkhammer was then visited by a group of Iowa State Police who headed straight to the town's sheriff's office to compare notes and clear up the obviously silly story. The leader of this group had to later report that his attempt to knock on the door of the building only resulted in his hand passing through the door as if nothing was there. After this, Urkhammer's very existence seems to have slowly disintegrated. Drivers passing by no longer saw children in the yards, and the plant growth in the yards grew wild and uncontrolled. The houses, farms, and other structures became less and less substantial. It was on May 7, 1932, that
that a passing farmer discovered that the whole town was simply no longer where it was once located. All that occupied the area the town once stood in were abandoned fields, long, rotted fences, and one cast-iron bathtub once used to water livestock, which now sat alone in a field of weeds. It's been said that some years after these strange events, the site that was once Urkhammer was briefly occupied by a camp of traveling gypsies, but this group packed up and left almost as soon as they had camped. The leader of this group later told a councilman at a nearby town that the site was, quote, saturated with the tears of the dispossessed and with the despair of those who had never borne names, unquote. So where did Urkhammer go? The answer to this question is surprisingly simple. Nowhere. Urkhammer, you see, never existed. The first mention of Urkhammer was in 2015 when it was related in a post in Cullen Hudson's Strange State website. According to Hudson, the story had been found by his mother while she was cleaning out old emails. She was checking them as she went along for anything that might be of interest to her son, who has an interest in oddities. Neither Hudson nor his mother knew where the short story had originated, but Hudson was pretty sure it was fictional and supposed that his mother could have written it and forgotten about it later. So the main take from this, in the first presentation of the story, the presenter states he believes the story is fictional, but this particular detail was left out of later retellings of the story, most notably on YouTube in 2017 and most recently on the Mysterious Universe website. An internet search for the town of Urkhammer, Iowa turns up only references to the story, and all of them dated for after the 2015 posting of the account to the Strange State website. As a further detail, for those of you still not convinced, the newspaper mentioned in the account, the Davenport Clarion Sun-Telegraph, which was mentioned in the original Strange State posting of the Urkhammer story, never existed so all evidence point to this tale being a pure internet legend, introduced by a website and repeated in a shorter form by other websites interested in a good story more than facts. Do you have a dark tale to tell? Share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And if you'd like to support the show, you can become a patron for as little as $1 per month. Patrons giving $5 per month or more become official weirdos and get commercial-free versions of every Weird Darkness episode I post. Patrons at the $10 per month level or higher get more exclusive content, such as chapters of books that I'm narrating into audiobooks as I record them often weeks or months before they ever hit retail or online stores. You can see what I'm currently narrating and see all of the giving levels on the Become a Patron page at WeirdDarkness.com. Also at WeirdDarkness.com you can get the free mobile app, find Weird Darkness on Facebook and Twitter, join the Weirdo Facebook group, listen to my daily dose of weird news, read creepy stories, or watch eerie videos I find online, and more. And if you like the show, please help me spread the word about it. If you consider yourself a weirdo, tell your friends, co-workers, and families about Weird Darkness and why you like it. You could post a link directly to this episode on Facebook, Twitter, and other social media with a quick note about what you heard in this episode. 
text or email your contacts about the show, too. A recommendation from a loved one or a friend to listen to the podcast? That is a lot more powerful than you could possibly know. Better than any advertising I could possibly buy. And the more listeners I have, well, the more I can pour right back into the podcast to make it better. And while you're listening to the podcast, take a moment, leave a rating and review. I might read your comments here in the podcast. Bronwyn Bart left a review in Apple Podcasts saying, Love this podcast. I listen to your podcast every day at work. I love the way you tell the stories and explain different aspects of the story. Listening makes the day better and more interesting. Also, as someone suffering from depression, I love your little bit at the end where you bring some light into the message. Brings a smile to my face every day. Taylor Ray 4 left a review in Apple Podcasts saying, Background sound too much. Though I love the voice, the background music and noises is way too much for me. It's so overly dramatic the entire time. And then Dog Art GML left an Apple Podcast review. Amazing! I love this podcast. It's so cool that he posts every day. Every single day. He has the best voice and the combination of fiction and nonfiction is perfect. He even includes a little quote at the end that's happy. Must listen. Well, thank you very much to all of you for those really nice comments, even the critical ones. I actually do appreciate people who email me or leave a review and are honestly critical. Not mean, but honestly critical, something that I can actually incorporate or at least think about to make the show better. So thank you very much. If you'd like to drop me an email, you can do that at darren at weirddarkness.com. All stories in this episode are purported to be true, and you can find source links or links to the authors in the show notes. I'll Grind His Bones to Make My Bread was written by DHWTY for Ancient Origins. Disappearance at the Eileen Moore Lighthouse was written by A. Sutherland for Ancient Pages. Where is Urkhammer was written by Garth Haslam for AnomalyInfo.com. When the Poltergeist Finds Its Voice was written by Tim R. Swartz for Spectral Vision. Music provided by Midnight Syndicate and Shadows Symphony. You can find links to both in the show notes. And now that we're coming out of the dark, I'll leave you with a little light. Matthew 11:28, one of my favorite verses from the Bible. Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. And a final thought. Most often, the people who criticize your life are usually the same ones who don't know the price you paid to get where you are today. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the Weird Darkness. Wait a minute! Fee fi fo fop I smell no no that's not right uh fee fi fo fum fee fo fi fum But now I don't smell anything Wait a minute Fi fo fum fee No dear it's fee fi fo fum That's what I said Fee-fi-fum-fum! Fum, stupid! Fee-fi-fo-fum! Have you been dreaming of writing your own book? Have you already written one? 
How would you like to be a published author with Dorrance Publishing? They've been working with authors and publishing great books for nearly a hundred years, and your book could be next. And they cover it all. They edit your text, design your book pages, create a great-looking cover for your book. Plus, as one of their authors, you'll also benefit from a custom book promotion marketing campaign, making your book available everywhere people buy books – online like Amazon, but also brick-and-mortar bookstores. Your only job is to write the book. Call Dorans Publishing toll-free at 800-847-1362. 800-847-1362. Even if you're only curious, it's still worth making this free call to get their free author's guide to becoming a published author. Call Dorans Publishing at 800-847-1362. Imagine, someday I might be promoting your book in my podcast. 800-847-1362.